Thanks, ladies. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Thank you, Karen, for being here this morning. I think Jennifer Bonner is at Disney World. I saw that somewhere on Facebook, and Karen Hopkins agreed to come and join us this morning on the piano. Thank you for doing that. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, part of having the privilege of studying Mark with you and sharing with you week after week. I just want to um, remind all of you that if you have school-aged children, it may be, uh, next week may be spring break for you. But many of our women don't have school-aged children, and so it's not spring break for them. So we will be here next week for Women in the Word. I would just encourage you, if you have kids home from spring break, you know, try to make a play date or have a friend for them to visit with because I kind of guarantee you by Thursday, you're going to want to be here at Women in the Word. So think ahead and make that plan. If you're traveling next week, I want to remind you that we live stream every morning, every Wednesday morning at 11 o'clock. You can do that. Watch it on your smartphone or your iPad, your computer, whatever. We want you to be here one way or the other. We um, enjoy having everyone here and we want it to continue spring break or not. You know, when my boys ranged in age from nine to four, our family took a spring break trip one year to Padre Island. We even took along um, another boy, my nine-year-old nephew. So with four boys in tow, we went to Padre Island and we actually did have a really great time. Now, my husband only had a few days off that week, so he left early and flew home. And I think my judgment was clouded after having been with those four little boys all week long because for some reason it didn't sound hard for me to pack up and drive home with those four little boys all by myself. And it was a great week. We did fishing and swimming and beaching, great activities for little boys. It had been a high point for each and every one of us, I think. But unfortunately, the low points began the next morning when I had to get up and pack the car and get those four boys in the car. When I got up that morning, the boys were cranky and uncooperative and argumentative. Low point. I woke up that morning feeling kind of queasy, thinking, eh, something's not quite right here and really driving, dreading the drive home by myself. Low point. About an hour into the seven-hour drive with my boys, I began to run a fever, low point. About two hours into the drive, I began to throw up, major low point, with four little boys in the car. Now, uh, it was also back before the days of cell phones, so there you are on the highway with four little boys throwing up. Not um, Definitely not a high point in the vacation story at this point. I won't share with you the whole story. I could spend the whole morning talking about it. But what happened is I ended up um, in Austin having an appendectomy at 2 in the morning with the four little boys in tow. Um, The high point at the end of the story was my college roommate lived in Austin and she came and rescued the four little boys. I don't know whether she was rescuing me or rescuing the little boys at that point. And the other great high point was my husband managed to uh, get on an airplane at the last minute. And as I was heading into surgery at two in the morning, he burst through the doors and waved at me. So um, by that time, I really was just ready to die. So all I wanted to do, all I wanted to do was just, you know, blow him a kiss and go on. Um, 
all of our journeys, all of our journeys, whether they're your spring break vacation um, or whether it's some other physical journey, spiritual journey, emotional journey, are going to have some high points and some low points. And the truth is we can learn from all of them. High points are low points. My lesson from this uh, journey was um, being in the car with four little boys was sent you to the hospital. That was kind of... um, (laughs) Kind of my lesson there. Not really. I love those little boys that are now all big men. So let's learn some journey lessons this week from Mark chapter 9. So turn there with me and let's look at how the disciples fare in their spiritual journey with Jesus. Following that life-changing, eye-opening, personal question that Jesus asked them when we were together last week in chapter 8. If you remember, he looked them all in the eye and he said... But what about you? Who do you say I am? That was the pivotal point in the book of Mark. Up until that point, the main question had been, who is this guy? After that, the question is, what does it mean that he's the Messiah? What does he come to do? And the other question is, what does it look like to follow this Messiah? You know, as modern day believers, we have the blessing of knowing what the Messiah's mission was in the world, don't we? Because we have the scriptures right here that tell us the whole story from beginning to end. We know that he came in his first advent to be the sacrificial lamb to die for our sins. That's the story we know from our written scriptures. But there's still a question out there that remains for us and certainly for the disciples. And that is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow this Messiah? The question that Jesus asked last week in chapter 8, who do you say that I am, really is a question whose answer defines our journey of discipleship. Last week, we saw the disciples answer that question verbally. Peter stood up for the group, and the words out of his mouth were, You are the Christ. This week, as we go through chapter 9 together, we are going to see them answer that question, not with their words, but with their day-to-day lives, with their actions and their attitudes, with their hearts. You know, the truth is, we really can answer that question by the way that we live. Sometimes we do answer it with our words, but mostly the answer doesn't come out of our mouths, but it comes out of how we live our life. That's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to see that there are some highs and some lows along the road of discipleship uh, for the disciples and certainly for us too. And the first experience that they have after their acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 8 is a high point. It's a mountaintop experience. So read with me beginning in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came to the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. 
Now, Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John here to go with him up to the top ridge of Mount Hermon. If you still have your map, you can look at your map, and it's at the very top of your map, just north of the Sea of Galilee. And the text tells them that when they were alone, just the four of them on the very top of that ridge, Jesus actually changed before them. His clothes became dazzling white. And I... um, I love marks uh, whiter than any bleach could ever possibly make them. That is such a mark statement. Moses and Elijah joined him after his appearance was changed. How stunning is that? The Greek word that's used here uh, and translated in our Bibles for uh, transfigured is actually the Greek word metamorpho, which in the English is the word, the English word for metamorphosis. And it means a change in one's outward appearance that is in keeping with one's inner nature. So the appearance that the disciples here with Jesus, those white, bright clothes, is in keeping with his inner nature, with who Jesus really is. For those moments on the mountain, Jesus' human body was transformed into his glorified body, into that same body that he's going to have when he comes at the end of the time to establish the millennial kingdom. We talked about that in Uh, Isaiah and again in Daniel. Jesus' human body was transformed here into his glorified body. And with Jesus in his um, glorified body, there's also Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament saints. And they are talking with Jesus. Now this account doesn't really tell us what they're talking about. If you turn to the account in Luke, it says they're talking about his departure, which either means his uh, death or perhaps his ascension. But Mark doesn't give us that information. But Moses and Elijah have both had prominent roles in Israel's history. Peter, James, and John may not have had a physical recognition of them, but for some reason they know who this is and they understand how prominent these two saints are. They're well known to the disciples. And just because they're there talking with Jesus, it gives value and credibility to the fact that Jesus must be the Messiah. Their presence is a validation of Peter's confession that we heard back in chapter 8 where he said, you are the Christ. And just as Jesus' transformed appearance and his uh, conversation with Elijah and Moses are an affirmation of Peter's confession that he's the Christ, Peter's words here where he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. Also point out the fact that Peter is still confused. He still doesn't understand Jesus' mission as the Messiah. And Mark gives him a break here. The other gospel writers don't give him the break of saying that he's afraid. They just do his words. But Mark gives him a break here and says he blurted this out because he didn't know what else to say. Regardless of why he said it, Peter's words still mean that he's rejecting Jesus' words about his suffering and his death. And what he's ready to do is usher in the millennial kingdom. He's thinking, hey, we are going to set up these three shelters here. You guys are going to stay. As his mind, uh, Peter's kind of an impulsive guy. His mind is probably already thinking. And then after we're here, we're going to go down the mountain. We're going to go into Jerusalem. The kingdom is here. I think my favorite part of this account is that God the Father does not even let Peter finish speaking before he intervenes. Um, That was kind of the way it was in my house. When the kids were getting unruly, Dad always knew it and jumped right in. And here God the Father jumps in. We see um, 
the cloud descend. And in the Old Testament, a cloud frequently represented the image of God's presence and his protection. The words that we hear spoken from this cloud are short and they are profound. And we hear God the Father say, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now these are going to be important words for the disciples to take to heart all of their lives. I can only imagine that Peter and James and John, after the resurrection, as they go throughout their ministries, still remember what they heard God the Father say that day. Um, But, you know, there are three great purposes to these statements here other than the disciples simply remembering them as they go through the rest of their lives. The first one is that these words point out the fact that even though the Old Testament saints who are great uh, in the nation of Israel are present, only Jesus is the Son of God. Um, Moses and Elijah are prominent in the history of Israel, but only Jesus is the Son of God. He is superior to them in every way as the Messiah. The second thing God's words point out here is that in light of what is going to happen to Jesus, as he goes on to be rejected and persecuted and executed, it says to the disciples, none of this is because I have taken my hand of favor away from Jesus as the Messiah. The future events, the rejection, the persecution, the execution are God's perfect plan. And Jesus is perfectly submitting to that plan. And because of that, he's perfectly loved by the Father. The disciples should not presume that this rejection that's going to occur has anything to do with God's lack of favor on the Messiah. The third thing that these words from God the Father should do is open the disciples' ears. Open the disciples' ears. Listen, he says to Jesus, listen. Not listen to each other or listen to the Pharisees or even listen to the traditions of the Jewish culture. He says, listen to Jesus. And that's really what Peter's struggling with, isn't it? He hears Jesus' words. He doesn't have, he's not deaf. He hears the words Jesus speaks. But he's not listening to what Jesus is really saying. You know, a few weeks ago in your homework, I think it was Deb, and one of her weeks put in your homework, um, what does it take to be a good listener? And all the discussion times, the small group leaders, we had some great discussion, and everybody said, well, it takes focus, and it takes attention. It takes discipline. It takes respect for the speaker. Listening is a discipline. And it's a discipline that God wants the disciples to learn He wants them to cultivate listening to Jesus. Because if they don't, their journey on the road to discipleship is going to be much harder than it needs to be. You know, when my boys were growing up, I think that the one thing that they probably heard their earthly dad say more than anything other than I love you was listen. Listen. He said to them all the time, listen to your mom, listen to your teachers, listen to your coaches, listen to me. God the Father ends their mountaintop experience by saying, listen to Jesus. And just as suddenly as this mountaintop experience began for the disciples, it's over. And Jesus is back in his earthly body again. And Moses and Elijah have returned to the glory that they came from. The disciples make their way down the mountain with Jesus. And in those next few verses that we're not going to read, Jesus 
swears them to secrecy one more time. And he swears them to secrecy. He says, don't tell anyone about this. Um, And it's for the same reason that he's had in the past. He doesn't want the commotion that would come from people if they heard about this experience. Those that wanted to see if it would happen again. Can you imagine people would follow him around and think, okay, any minute we're going to see that happen again. He also doesn't want to be conscripted to go to the Um, go into Jerusalem and assume a kingship, um, something that would force his execution even earlier than what he had planned. But this time, Jesus does something different. He gives a time limit on his gag order this time. Before, he said, don't tell anyone. This time, he says, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, they can talk about it because it's going to be important information for um, the rest of the disciples to hear Um, and the rest of the world to hear after the resurrection. And obviously that's what happened because we have this account. Peter obviously talked about it to Mark, and Mark wrote it here in his account. Okay, let's keep reading verses 11 through 13. And they ask him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. You know, they're physically leaving this high point of being on a mountaintop experience with Jesus. Uh, But I think that it's probably still a high point in anyone's journey to be able to uh, take the things that you don't understand straight to Jesus and hear his answer. That's really why we're all here this morning, isn't it? Because we have questions that studying the word of God together will answer. And we get to hear Jesus's voice right here from the pages of our um, Bibles. Peter, James, and John don't have the scriptures, these particular New Testament scriptures that we have, but they do have Jesus, and they're going to take advantage of that. What a great high point in the journey of discipleship to be able to ask your questions of Jesus. The one they ask him about here is Elijah, because they are really struggling to figure this out. They can't figure out if why if the prophets of Israel have said that Elijah must come first before the, before the Messiah and turn the nation of Israel back to him, and Jesus is the Messiah, then where did Elijah go that we just saw up on the mountaintop? Why didn't he come down that mountain with us? Why hasn't he been here all along turning the people back to God? But Jesus reminds him here in verse 13, that Elijah has already come. And when he reminds them of that in verse 13, he's referring to John the Baptist who came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Look on your verse sheet because this is what the angel Gabriel said to John the Baptist's father before his birth. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So Jesus willingly answers their question here. He tells them, Um, about Elijah, but he also wants to make sure that they know, which is why he injects that little question about why does the Messiah have to suffer and die? He also wants them to know um, that Elijah's coming is not going to stop the Messiah's going to the cross. 
He will suffer, the Messiah will suffer, and he will die just like those same prophets predicted. They're concerned about the prophets predicting Elijah and how that's going to play out. But the prophets also predicted the suffering and death of the Messiah. Look at Isaiah 53.3 on your verse sheet. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So the disciples' first experience after following, uh, with following Jesus after their acknowledgement that he was the Christ, just a few verses before, was a high point in their journey. It was filled with supernatural power. It was filled with insight um, about the future kingdom. And it was filled with some honest conversation with Jesus. Basically, their high point was filled with Jesus, wasn't it? And all his glory. And it teaches us a great lesson about the highs and lows of discipleship. High points in the journey of discipleship happen when our lives are centered on Jesus, on his true identity that they get to see on the mountaintop, on his future glory that they get to see on the mountaintop, and on his awesome presence, which they experience every day as they walk along the road. Colossians 1.15 on your verse sheet says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created for him and by him. This is the Jesus that we journey with. This is the Jesus that the high points in our discipleship journey are centered on. Let's read verses 14 through 19. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that was robbed, has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. While Jesus and his inner circle of James and John and Peter were on the mountaintop and having that great conversation, which was a high point in their discipleship journey, the other disciples who weren't with Jesus were trying to cast out this demon from this poor boy that's afflicted. You know, and these two experiences are actually an interesting contrast, on, uh, aren't they? I read uh, one quote that said, It shows the interesting reality of trying to live in a world without Jesus. As Jesus walks up to the crowd, the crowd's excited to see him because he's pretty famous by now, and they run to him. And Jesus sees all that commotion, the disciples arguing, the crowd rushing him, and he asks what's going on. And it's the father that answers him. Um, The father, the demon-possessed boy, explains how terribly afflicted the boy has been, how difficult his life was, and that um, he had asked Jesus' disciples to drive out this evil spirit 
but they could not do it. Now, the request that the father had for the disciples to drive out the evil spirit was a legitimate one. If you remember back uh, to chapter 6, Jesus has given his disciples the authority that he has over the um, spiritual world. He's given it to the disciples and actually sent them out to do just that. That was part of their ministry. Jesus has dominion over the spiritual realm. He has the right to give that dominion to um, his disciples. All that's really required of the disciples here is that they would depend on the authority that Jesus has given them. You know, Jesus' response in verse 19 here tells us how deeply shaken he is, how emotional he is to hear what has happened He's addressing the entire crowd, but of course his disciples are part of that crowd. And I know he wants them to hear what he's saying. With deep emotion, he addresses what the root really is of all spiritual spiritual failure. And that is a lack of faith in God. Or as Jesus puts it here, unbelief. Unbelief. And his rhetorical questions of how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Really are expressing his own frustration. He's frustrated because his very presence among them should have been miracle grow on whatever tiny bit of faith that they have. And yet all that they've experienced, all that they've done with him, all that they've watched him do has not grown their faith. Now, Jesus has great compassion for this son. You can, um, you can tell that. And he asked the father to bring the boy to him in verse 19. And it's always uh, interesting to me. Um, we're seeing the unbelief of the crowd and the disciples and even the boy's father here. But who recognizes Jesus, the evil spirit? And when he sees Jesus, the evil spirit begins to act out and causes the boy great distress. And when Jesus sees that, he says to the father, how long has this been going on in verse 21? And that begins a great discussion between Jesus and the father that focuses on the issue of faith and belief, a discussion that I think I've found myself having with Jesus a few times. Let's read verses 22 through 24 or 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has, this, has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, Everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You know, when the boy's father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, he really reveals that at this point, he's not sure Jesus can help him. He's not sure that Jesus really has that power. And, you know, it probably comes from the fact that um, he's gone to the disciples and they haven't been able to help him. We had a discussion in the small group leaders time this morning about how our unbelief oftentimes affects the belief system of others. um, How we have the ability to impact what happens. So our belief is important to those around us. Jesus um, Jesus's answer in verse 23 points out what the real issue is, not only for the father, 
But every disciple that's on the road of discipleship trying to follow Jesus, the real issue is not if Jesus can help the boy. Jesus is God. If is not part of the equation. Obviously, God can help the boy. The real issue at stake here is if we believe that he can. If we believe that he can. It is um, an immutable fact that Jesus can help this boy. It's not an immutable fact. Our belief is not an immutable fact. We, but the issue is if we believe that he can. If we say with our mouths that he is the Christ, then as his disciples, we can't set any limits on his power in our lives by, his, by our unbelief. When you believe he is God, when you believe he is God, you live your life like everything is possible. Simply because of that immutable fact that he is God. Look on your verse sheet. This is Jesus talking, Matthew 19, 26. Jesus himself says, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The issue is not if Jesus can. The issue is, do we believe that Jesus can? I love verse 24 because it's so authentic and real. The father says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I don't think you can get any more authentic in front of Jesus than that. And truly, there are probably none of us that are here today that if we were honest, wouldn't confess that we have been in that same spot where we do believe Jesus is the Messiah, but we really suffer from believing um, that he has the power to work in our lives. There is a cure for the low spot in our journey as disciples of being an unbelieving believer. And we see it in verse 24. The father calls out to Jesus himself to help him in his unbelief. And you know, that's exactly what we can do when we find ourselves in that very same spot of believing that Jesus is the Christ, yet not believing that he has the power to work in our lives. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 on your verse sheet. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And Hebrews 12, 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, the great news for us today is that our faith, our belief, is the gift of God. It is the work of God in our lives. It is not something that we as believers have to manufacture. So anytime we are faced of being in that difficult situation of being an unbelieving believer we believe that jesus is god but we don't believe that he has the power to change our lives we can do exactly what the father does here and we can call out to jesus with the transparency and authenticity that we see here because jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith if our faith needs to grow ask jesus to grow it If our faith needs to be refined, to step up to the plate when we're in a difficult situation, it's Jesus that does that in our lives. Now drop your eyes down to verses 28 and 29 with me. 
After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus's answer in verse 29 is, this kind can only come out by prayer. These words unfortunately point out another low point in the disciples' journey on the road to discipleship. It points out the pitfall of an independent spirit. An independent spirit that answers that question, who do you say I am? Not with the Christ, but answers that question with an attitude and an action that says, don't bother me, I'm handling this on my own. It really doesn't matter who you are because I've got complete control of this situation. The disciples had apparently begun to believe that they were casting out evil spirits through their own abilities. Because of that, they were not going back to the Father in prayer, in faith, in dependence. And that's exactly what we've seen Jesus himself do in the Gospels over and over and over again. We see Jesus has gone back to the Father independence and in prayer. Jesus does not have an independent spirit. He is dependent on the Father at all times. Going to God in prayer is a statement not only of our dependence on him, but of our faith in him as well. My youngest son was born saying the words, I do it myself. I do it myself. No matter what it was, he never wanted help with it. Never wanted help with it. Um, and I'm here to testify as his mother that even for a toddler, having an independent spirit can really cause some difficulties in your life. A toddler with an independent spirit frequently wears their shoes on the wrong feet because no one, I thought the poor child was never going to learn really to run because he always had his shoes on the wrong feet. Um, if you have an independent spirit, as a toddler, you go to school with clown hair because you won't let anyone brush it or touch it, and you insist on putting goop on it that doesn't really belong on hair. As followers of Jesus, the consequences of an independent spirit are really more than wearing your shoes on the wrong feet or having clown hair. The consequences of having an independent, or independent spirit are exactly what we see here. It means that God's power is not going to be displayed in the world because we have been a roadblock to it with our independent spirit. It means that God's power is not going to be a compassionate force in people's lives because we and our independent spirit have been a roadblock to it. Um, the good news is that Jesus tells us that the cure of an independent spirit is pretty simple. The cure of having an independent spirit, I can do it myself, I don't really need anybody else, is prayer. Is prayer. We can cure our independent spirits every single day by going to God, placing yourself at the feet of the Father and acknowledging who he is and asking for his help. Okay, so let's read verses 30 through 35. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum when he was when he was in the house, he asked them, 
What are you arguing about on the road? They kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and the servant of all. This is the second time that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark Jesus talking to the disciples about his future suffering and his future death. The very first time was last week in chapter 8. And that first time was after just seconds after his acknowledgement, after their acknowledgement that Jesus was the Christ. And from that point on, what we see in the book of Mark is that Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for the future that he knows he is going to have. He uses the title, the Son of Man here. We talked about that last week. That's an Old Testament messianic title. And he tells them a new little piece of the puzzle here. I don't know whether you picked that up. But here for the first time, he tells them that someone will hand him over to be killed. Now, after they arrive in Capernaum, Jesus already knows that during the journey, they have fallen into another low spot in the road of discipleship. You know, and it's true, sometimes I think I can hide my low spots in my journey of discipleship um, from the people around me, but I am never going to be able to hide it from Jesus. He knows when I have fallen into that hole in the road. And he knows that here with the disciples. They've argued among themselves about who's the most important disciple. Now, he's been telling them that he's going to suffer and die and be executed. And they're arguing about who is the most important here. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? Um, Probably their argument was fueled maybe by the fact that Peter, James, and John had had some different experiences with Jesus and the rest of them. It could be fueled by the fact that rank and position was important in Jewish society. Or it could be fueled simply by the fact that they think the Messianic kingdom is going to come pretty quickly and they are going to be um, the cabinet members and they want to know uh, what position they're going to do. Regardless of the cause, it shows that they are still not listening to Jesus and his message. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them. Just as the Father has said, um, listen to Jesus, he's giving them every opportunity to listen to him and his wisdom. And he sits them down here and he gives them a lesson in the essence of true greatness. The essence of true greatness. He tells them that greatness is not defined by your place at the head of the line. Greatness is defined when you're willing to get out of the line completely. When you're willing to get out of the line Because you want to serve others that are in the line. The word for servant here that's used in verse 35 means um, one who freely attends to the needs of others. It doesn't mean servile or um, servant or slave. To illustrate his point in verses 36 through 38, which we're not going to read because of our time... Um, he uses a child. And in the Jewish world and in the Roman world as well, children were the least significant of all people. Jesus takes that little child and uses them as his illustration. And, and when he does that, he dignifies and honors the task of servant, of which Jesus is the first and best example of servanthood that we could ever have. He dignifies the honor of serving here by teaching that when you serve someone else, even the lowliest in society like this little child, you're really welcoming Jesus himself. 
It's a great thought to think of the next time that you do something small and insignificant or something big and large for someone that um, you think may not really deserve this. You're really welcoming Jesus. Um, when we become more concerned about recognition in the kingdom rather than opportunities to serve others in the kingdom, we are answering the question, who do you say I am? with actions and attitudes that say, uh, I don't really care who you are because it's all about me. It's all about me. It's a low spot on our journey of discipleship when we forget that it's really not about us at all. It's not even this much about us. It's about Jesus. He is the Christ. But once again, Jesus graciously gives us the antidote here to our struggle with wanting recognition. And the antidote to that is humble service to others. I know all of you in this room have probably had that great experience of really realizing the joy of serving others and taking yourself out of the equation. Okay, let's read verses 38 through 41 quickly. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. You know, the issue that the disciples are struggling with here in their journey of discipleship um, is the fact that another disciple, one that doesn't happen to be part of their inner circle, their elite group of 12, is doing what they haven't been able to do, which is to drive out evil spirits in the name of Jesus. Now, this other disciple is not doing anything wrong. Um, in fact... Um, he was probably doing a lot of things right, doing things that the disciples had not been able to do. Elitism is always a low spot in our journey of discipleship. In fact, elitism has been something that the church has struggled with for the last two centuries. A friend of mine a couple of years ago asked me to pray for her daughter who was in the first grade because all the little first grade girls were forming clubs and they were telling each other who could be a part of their club and who couldn't uh, be a part of the club. You know, elitism is not healthy or attractive even for six-year-old little girls. And it's even less healthy or attractive in the church among believers. Not every disciple looks the same, talks the same, or chooses to worship Jesus the same. But that doesn't necessarily mean their allegiance to Jesus is any less than the 12 here. Um, in verse 41, Jesus affirms that even the smallest acts of service done in his name, alongside others and with others that bear his name, are going to result in a blessing. Recognizing the value of unity in the family of God helps us transcend our differences and helps us overcome the pitfall of elitism in our journey as disciples. Okay, we're going to finish with just a couple of more verses. Verses 42. Let's start with verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. 
where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. You know, Jesus has already up to this point seen the the disciples struggle with unbelief and a desire for greatness and elitism and an independent spirit. So right here, when he teaches them, he doesn't have any illusion that as they continue on in their journey of discipleship, that they are not going to have a lot of temptation that may lead them into sin. The first point that he makes here in verse 42 is one that we should all take to heart as well. And that is what he's really talking about in this passage is lack of self-control. Because it's our lack of self-control that has a tendency to lead us into sin. And in verse 42, what he gives us a great warning here. If our lack of self-control influences or impacts another believer to fall into sin, there's going to be consequences for it. Great consequences. Uh, Tying a big millstone around someone's neck and throwing them in the water was something that the Jewish people had seen, done in the Roman world. They knew what he was talking about here. It's probably not a great thing to happen to you. Um, Influencing other people with our lack of self-control comes with a great warning from Jesus. The second thing that we see here when it comes to lack of self-control is that Jesus uses examples of members of our physical body in these verses, saying if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If it's your foot, cut it off. If it's your eye, pluck it out. He's using hyperbole here because when we lack self-control, temptation If you think about it, temptation often comes to us from what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, what we look at with our eyes. And Jesus' cure for a lack of self-control in our lives as disciples um, is to deal with it swiftly and decisively. That's why the actions of amputation here are given. If I can't stay away from um, the Oreo cookies that I keep for the grandkids in my pantry, guess what? I don't need Oreo cookies in my pantry, do I? I need to cut off that hand that keeps grabbing the cookies. If I can't control spending money, then I need to get rid of my credit card. If I can't keep my eyes off of inappropriate things on the Internet, I need to disconnect my Internet. That's the kind of action that Jesus is talking about here. When we lack self-control, we have a tendency to um, flirt with our lack of self-control, to think about how we're going to rein ourselves in. Jesus tells us just the opposite here. There's no flirting with a lack of self-control. Our actions need to be swift and decisive. But Jesus also encourages us here in these last few verses Dealing with self-control in our lives may be hard. It may require swift and decisive action. But if we have an eternal perspective, if we realize as believers that dealing with our self-control issue um, is also going to come with the reward of eternal life with Jesus in heaven, it's going to make it a little bit easier. Particularly when we realize, as he points out so graphically here in his references to hell, Unbelievers, however, are not only going to live with the consequences of their undisciplined lives this side of heaven, they are going to live with the consequences of their unbelief for eternity. You know, we saw at the very first of our lesson 
that the high points in our journey as disciples happen when our lives are centered on Jesus. That as we've seen as we've walked along with the disciples today, low points may be part of our journey as well. And the great lesson that we can learn from the disciples this morning as we look at their struggles and relate them to our own lives is um, that the low points in our journey happen when our lives become centered on ourselves. As disciples, we do want to get up every day and answer that question, who do you say I am, with actions and attitudes that reflect that Jesus is the Christ in our life. We can keep our journeys Christ-centered rather than self-centered, I think, when we go back to what God said to the inner circle on the mountaintop. When we take God's own words to heart, he said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's how we stay keeping our journeys centered on Christ and not centered on ourselves. Let's pray. Father, you are our good and gracious God. We thank you for your words this morning. And Father, I pray that we would all be women that keep our journeys centered on Jesus, that heed your words to listen to him. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives that is new every morning when we don't do that. And Father, um, I just ask you to be with all of us this week and just um, let Jesus' words ring in our ears and go deep in our hearts. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.